Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast number two. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is The Americans Before Columbus, part two. Last time we talked about the essential nature of the Indians, that they dramatically shaped their world, just as Eastern Hemisphere peoples had done, and were neither tree-hugging naturalists nor uncivilized barbarians. We ended the story just before we got to the Algonquin tribes of the Northeast, the first Indians that Northern European explorers got to know well when they arrived in the years following Columbus. Let's talk now about the Algonquin tribes that were pinned against the northeastern Atlantic coast and its immediate interior by the Iroquois to their west. Charles Mann, author of 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, described the pre-Columbian Algonquins by telling the story of the post-Columbian figure Tisquantum, known to Americans of a certain age as the friendly Indian Squanto. Squanto wasn't his actual name, and probably neither was Tisquantum, and for that matter, he might not have been so friendly. Notwithstanding my love of traditionalism, in this episode, I'll follow a man's lead and go with Tisquantum too, if you will forgive me the occasional lapse. The reason why we might talk a bit about Tisquantum now, we'll have much more to say when we get to the Pilgrims and the Mayflower and all, is that we know of pre-Columbian conditions because of the very earliest observations by Europeans who wrote stuff down, and Indians who had learned European languages and spoke to Europeans who, again, wrote stuff down. Everything else is inferred or hypothesized via archaeology, botany, and other disciplines, rather than witnessed. Tisquantum was a man of Patuxet, later Plymouth, one of the coastal settlements that comprised the Wampanoag Confederation in what is now eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. The Wampanoags, if you will, were in turn in federation with the Nauset, who ran Cape Cod, and the Massachusetts, who lived along the coast from a bit north of Patuxet through Boston up to around modern-day Salem. Massachusetts was both the name of a tribe and the language it spoke, Massachusetts had a name for the New England shore, the Dawnland, and its inhabitants were the people of the first light. The Indians of the Dawnland ate very well. Fields of maize planted in clusters along the other, along with the other two sisters, beans and squash, ran inland for a mile or more from the villages along the shore. After the fields, there would have been a forest of oak, chestnut, and hickory, open and park-like, according to man, the underbrush kept down by expert annual burning. Here I might add a parenthetical. The Indians of North America used fire aggressively, all the time and on purpose, to shape their environment. Another example of their confronting and taming the wilderness, rather than the Disney naturalist version. We could learn a thing or two about fire management from them even now. Close parenthetical. The supply of fish from both the oceans and the running rivers was extraordinary. And, of course, there were the delectable shellfish along the coast, as anyone who has had a lobster roll or a dozen New England oysters on the half shell well knows. Anyway, one modern reconstruction estimated that Donland diets at the time averaged about 2,500 calories a day, 
better than in Europe by some margin. That probably explains why the earliest Europeans to the New World, from Columbus's crews to the Northern Europeans who came to Maritime Canada and New England, were so impressed by the height and physical beauty of the Indians. They had not yet been ravaged by Eastern Hemisphere diseases, and in many cases ate a lot more protein than the typical European of the day. The Squantum would have lived in a home called a Wetu, consisting of arched poles lashed together into a dome, covered with thick rush mats in the winter, and convertible into chestnut bark roof in the summer. There was always a fire in the center, the smoke going out through a hole in the roof. Quoting Mann, English visitors did not find this arrangement peculiar. Chimneys were just coming into use in Britain, and most homes there, including those of the wealthy, were still heated by fires beneath central roof holes. Nor did the English regard the Donlan Wetu as primitive. Its multiple layers of mats, which trapped insulating layers of air, were, quote, warmer than our English houses, sighed the colonist William Wood, end quote. Of course, even today, a double-wide in Iowa is warmer than an English house, so I'm not sure William Wood was in the best position to judge, but there you go. What else? Pilgrim writers reported that Wampanoag families were close and loving. In today's terms, Donland parents were decidedly free-range, and boys of Squanto's generation explored the countryside, went swimming, and played a kind of soccer with a small leather ball. Apparently, archery practice began at the age of two. And by adolescence, boys would make a game of shooting at each other and dodging the arrows. And here we are, banning lawn darts and cat pistols. Slingshots. All good fun. Man has quite a bit more to say about Donland child rearing, which you will enjoy if you read the book. You should. I'm going to quote it a fair amount in this podcast because he writes so well. Now, for Algonquin governance, which one might imagine had an impact on Europeans who were developing their own systems. Quote, Patuxet, like its neighboring settlements, was governed by a sachem who upheld the law, negotiated treaties, controlled foreign contacts, collected tribute, declared war, provided for widows and orphans, and allocated farmland when there were disputes over it. Donlanders lived in a loose scatter but they knew which family could use which land. Very exact and punctual, Roger Williams, founder of the Rhode Island Colony, called Indian care for property lines. As a practical matter, sachems had to gain the consent of their people, who could easily move away and join another sachemship. Close quote. Eventually, we will get to the pilgrims and the earliest roots of European-American self-governance, but already you can see where this is heading. Between very exact property lines and the substantive consent of the governed, you can see that neo-democratic governance in New England might have seemed quite natural in that place, however revolutionary it would have been in fact. Now let's talk about the population of the North American Indians, especially in the Northeast, before Europeans arrived. Again, to know this, we have to rely in no small part on the very earliest observations of Europeans who wrote them down or reliably passed them along to those who did. This presents a challenge because the Indians of the Dawnland and indeed elsewhere in North America began to die off in massive numbers shortly after first contact.
estimates of the pre-colonial Indian population of the land that is now the continental United States range from around 2 million to as much as 18 million, with various numbers in between. Since these estimates embrace a range that is essentially an order of magnitude, it is not surprising that there is a huge academic argument over them as yet unresolved. The prevailing estimates of a majority of scholars have, roughly speaking, risen over time. Not only do we have all those new techniques for learning about the heavy Indian footprint on the land, see the previous episode in case you missed that discussion, but as the decades and centuries go by, scholars of European birth and descent are decreasingly interested in lowballing Indian populations to justify European-American expansion across the continent and, and at Indian expense. Still, even as the high counters in this academic dispute have probably achieved ascendancy, there are scholars fighting a rearguard action in favor of low counts. The leading low count argument is set forth in David Hennig's Numbers from Nowhere, the American Indian Contact Population Debate, which I will confess, I have not read. I read summaries of it. I like the high counts, in part because it seems probable that the area in question could have supported 18 million people free of European disease and industrialized warfare. Remember that the white and black population of the United States as late as 1840 was only 17 million and the lower 48 states comprise more than 3 million square miles. So I think 18 million sounds very reasonable for a well-fed agrarian society spread across a vast and mostly fertile continent. And, well, I confess I just like the idea of that many North American Indians. It's the romantic in me. So where did all those Indians go? This is obviously an extremely fraught topic given its implications for modern political and social narrative. There is, however, widespread agreement that a huge percentage of the Indian population of the Western Hemisphere, perhaps as high as 90 to 95 percent in some places, died from exposure to Eastern Hemisphere diseases for which Indians had no resistance. We know this because there are many examples of Indian populations suddenly vanishing leaving behind only remnants of wrecked societies. This phenomenon was most famously explored in Jared Diamond's book from 1997, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which no doubt many, uh, many of you are familiar with. We also have eyewitness evidence. Tisquantum was one of those witnesses. Let's go to man's description of the Dawnland in the years before the Pilgrims established Plymouth on the site of Tisquantum's hometown of Patuxet. The story starts with Giovanni de Verrazzano, the Italian mariner hired by the King of France in 1523 to look for a northwest passage to Asia. Sailing north from the Carolina coast, Verrazzano recorded that the coastline everywhere was densely populated, smoky with Indian bonfires. He could sometimes smell them burning hundreds of miles away. Moving up the coast, Verrazana and his crew met the Narragansett, who lived in modern-day Rhode Island. He and his crew lived with them for two weeks, wearing out their welcome a bit, 
but staying on good terms. Continuing to Maine and Canada, the Abenaki tribe Arizona encountered were ne- next were not nearly as friendly and bargained much more carefully in trade. Quoting Mann, the Indians denied the visitors permission to land, refusing even to touch the Europeans. They passed goods back and forth on a rope over the water. As soon as the crew members sent over the last items, the locals began showing their buttocks and laughing. Mooned by Indians, Verrazana was baffled by this, quote, barbarous behavior. But the reason for it seems clear. Unlike the Narragansett, the Abenaki had long experience with Europeans, end quote. Even in 1523, British fishing vessels may have reached Newfoundland fishing grounds as early as the 1480s. And in 1501, just nine years after the first voyage of Columbus, a Portuguese privateer abducted 50 or so Indians from Maine. The Abenaki had, therefore, already figured out that social distancing with Europeans was smart policy even if they did not know exactly why. Quoting Mann, During the century after Verrazano, Europeans were regular visitors to the Dawnland, usually fishing, sometimes trading, occasionally kidnapping natives as souvenirs. Verrazano had grabbed one himself, a boy of about eight. By 1610, Britain alone had about 200 vessels operating off Newfoundland and New England, Hundreds more came from France, Spain, Portugal, and Italy. With striking uniformity, these travelers reported that New England was thickly settled and well defended. In 1605 and 1606, Samuel de Champlain visited Cape Cod, hoping to establish a French base. He abandoned the idea. Too many people already lived there. A year later, Sir Fernando Gorge tried to found a community in Maine. It began with more people than the Pilgrims' later venture in Plymouth and was better organized and supplied. Nevertheless, the local Indians, numerous and well-armed, killed 11 colonists and drove the rest back home within months. Close quote. There are more such anecdotes. So what happened that made it possible for the Pilgrims to land in Cape Cod and settle permanently in its embrace? Well, back to the Pilgrim's friend Tisquantum, whose story is itself testament to rapid depopulation. For present purposes, we need only know that Tisquantum was kidnapped in the summer of 1614 by at Patuxet by Thomas Hunt, a disreputable colleague of John Smith, he of Jamestown fame. Hunt took Tisquantum and several other Indians to Spain to sell them into slavery, Spain and Portugal being at this point the Western European countries with an embedded tradition of slavery and a market in slaves, of which more in a future episode. Fortunately for Tisquantum in our history, the local priest, the church there frowned upon slavery, intervened and rescued some of them, including Tisquantum. Eventually, he talked his way into passage to North America via England, which was not so easy to arrange in those days, there being no regular listing of scheduled ship departures and fares. After having spent enough time in England to learn English and about the English, Tisquantum ended up ashore in Maine. Eventually, Tisquantum hitched a ride down the coast back to Patuxet with Englishman Thomas Dermer. 
man again. What Tisquantum saw on his return home was unimaginable. From southern Maine to Narragansett Bay, the coast was empty, utterly void, Dermer reported. What had once been a line of busy communities was now a mass of tumble-down homes and untended fields overrun by blackberries. Scattered among the houses and fields were skeletons bleached by the sun. Slowly, Dermer's crew realized they were sailing along the border of a cemetery 200 miles long and 40 miles deep. Patuxent had been hit with special force. Not a single person remained. Tisquantum's entire social world had vanished. Looking for his kinsfolk, he led Dermer on a melancholy march inland. The settlements they passed lay empty to the sky, but full of untended dead. Close quote. As of 2005, when Mann was writing, historians suspected that a sick French sailor, captured by the Indians on Cape Cod, passed a European disease to the Massasoit, who spread it up the coast. The leading theory was that the epidemic was a version of viral hepatitis, probably spread by contaminated food or means other than sexual contact. In 2010, however, Marr and Cathay, writing in the journal Emerging Infectious Diseases, proposed a kidney disease spread by rodents, leptospirosis, which is thought to have originated in Asia. Whatever the disease and its source, it killed Indians in heaps as they lay in their houses, according to an English merchant who saw it happen. The epidemic began in 1616, four years before the pilgrims were to arrive, and seems to have taken several years to burn through the Indian population, felling perhaps 90% of the people in coastal New England. The Algonquin tribes were as devastated before the Europeans arrived in New England in large numbers, just as Holmberg's Siriono had been in early 20th century Bolivia, with no doubt similar effects. The Algonquin tragedy had happened elsewhere in North America. In May 1539, Hernando de Soto landed with his expeditionary force in Florida near Tampa Bay after a bloody career promoting the conquest of the Inca in Peru. De Soto, who was at the more greedy than pious end of the conquistador spectrum, brought 600 soldiers, 200 horses, and 300 pigs, a meat locker on the hoof, as it were, and spent four years searching for gold and generally pillaging in what eventually became the southern United States of Florida, Georgia, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana. DeSoto eventually died of a fever without having found gold or anything else impressive to the King of Spain and not without brutalizing and killing countless Indians along the way. So, you know, just desserts and all that. But according to Mann, the worst thing he did, some researchers say, was entirely without malice. He brought the pigs. DeSoto's expedition encountered a lot of Indians. At one point, the expedition built barges to cross the Mississippi near today's Memphis. Every afternoon, several thousand Indian warriors approached in canoes and mocked the Spanish as they worked occasionally unleashing barrages of arrows. 
Those Indians came from thickly settled big towns in eastern Arkansas, two or three of them to be seen from one, according to one contemporaneous account. Each Indian city was fortified with walls, moats, and archers to defend them, presumably from warriors from the other nearby cities. After DeSoto left the area, it was more than a century before Indians visited this part of the Mississippi Valley again. Excuse me before Europeans visited this part of the Mississippi Valley again. This time it was the Frenchman LaSalle. LaSalle passed through the area where DeSoto had found cities one against the other. Quoting man, it was deserted. The French didn't see an Indian village for 200 miles. About 50 settlements existed in this strip of the Mississippi when DeSoto showed up, according to Anne Romanofsky an archaeologist at the University of New Mexico. By LaSalle's time, the number had shrunk to perhaps 10, some probably inhabited by recent immigrants. DeSoto had a privileged glimpse of an Indian world. The window opened and slammed shut. When the French came in and the historical record opened up again, it was a transformed reality. The civilization crumbled. The question is, how did this happen? Close quote. The leading hypothesis is that the pigs spread disease lethal to heretofore unexposed New World humans. Swine can transmit the Eastern Hemisphere diseases of anthrax, brucellosis, leptospirosis, trichinosis, and tuberculosis. They can infect New World deer and turkeys, which can then infect humans. Only a few of DeSoto's pigs would have had to wander off to contaminate the forest and its otherwise hasty animals. Quoting Mann, The calamity wreaked by the DeSoto expedition, scholars argue, extended across the whole southeast. The societies of the Cato on the Texas-Arkansas border and the Cuso in western Georgia both disintegrated soon after. Licato had a taste for monumental architecture. Public plazas, ceremonial platforms, mausoleums. After DeSoto's army left, Licato stopped erecting community centers and began digging community cemeteries. Between the visits of DeSoto and LaSalle, according to Timothy K. Pertula, an archaeological consultant in Austin, the Cadoan population fell from about 200,000 to about 8,500, a drop of nearly 96%. An equivalent loss today would reduce the population of New York City to 56,000 people, not enough to fill a Yankee stadium. That's one reason whites think of Indians as nomadic hunters. Russell Thornton, an anthropologist at UCLA, said to Mann, everything else, all the heavily populated urbanized societies, was wiped out, close quote. And we have not even gotten to smallpox, which in all likelihood ripped up Western Hemisphere Indians, including north of the Rio Grande, more than any other disease. Now, there is a lot of academic argument over this theory, well and truly explored in man's book. And almost all matters of the Indians before Columbus, including especially their population and its demise, the evidence is circumstantial, and indirect, and involves different disciplines with different biases. 
and there are political considerations that perhaps influence the debate. Activists and apologists have axes to grind insofar as they want to assert or expiate sin in the judgment of history. We cannot know the correct population of the Indians. It is, however, absolutely the case that there are many more scholars today, as opposed to during my childhood and before, who argue cogently that there were a lot of Indians in the Western Hemisphere before Columbus, and that they were, by and large, depopulated, and their cultures destroyed before European settlement began in earnest. The high counters seem to have had the upper hand, and their demographic revolution is correct. If it is correct, then it becomes much easier to acknowledge Holmberg's mistake. The impression that European settlers got of the Indians was erroneous because it was based on societies destroyed by diseases that came with the earliest encounters between the people and animals of the two hemispheres. Before we end this episode, we should spend a little time on Indian technology. It is easy to assume that Indian tech was inferior to European, probably too easy. As man says, superior and inferior are poor words to describe the differences between Indian and European technology, certainly in the early years of close encounter. Consider arms. European firearms were certainly scary, what with loud noise, smoke, and a seemingly invisible projectile that could hit something suddenly from a distance. In fact, Indian longbows had longer range, more accuracy, and a substantially faster rate of fire than those old guns. Mann writes that Europeans were impressed by Indian technology. The foreigners, coming from a land plagued by famine, were awed by maize, which yields more grain per acre than any other cereal. Indian moccasins were so much more comfortable and waterproof than stiff, mullering English boots that when colonists had to walk for long distances, their Indian companions often pitied their discomfort and gave them new footwear. Indian birch bark canoes were faster and more maneuverable than any small European boat. In 1605, three laughing Indians in a canoe literally paddled circles around the lumbering dory rowed by traveler George Weymouth and seven other men. Despite official disapproval, the stunned British eagerly exchanged knives and guns for Indian canoes. Bigger European ships with sails had advantages. Indians got hold of them through trade and shipwreck and trained themselves to be excellent sailors. By the time of the epidemic, a rising proportion of the shipping traffic along the New England coast was of indigenous origin. Close quote. Okay, fine, that last bit is more about Indian ability to adopt European technology. That ought not surprise us once we've gotten over Holmberg's mistake, because the examples of that are many. The Plains Indians built an entire culture around feral Spanish horses before whites got that far west. Even after disease had destroyed their societies and reduced their population by 80% or more, Indians fought against European settlement and domination for more than 400 years after Columbus. The technology gap just wasn't that wide in any way that mattered in, say, 1600. Well, that about does it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. 
I certainly enjoyed making it and have several more in the can to roll out over the next few weeks. Right now, I expect to take about two weeks to produce one of these, what with all the reading and writing and no doubt sketchy recording and editing to do. Please consider subscribing so you know immediately when a new one becomes available. More importantly, please send me comments, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Thank you.